When identity politics becomes totalitarian in nature, uh, subjectivity becomes prized over the objective search for truth and the attack on the enlightenment. You cannot reason with people who reject reason and evidence and logic. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, what happens when words like truth and reconciliation don't mean what they appear to mean? What happens, for example, when the president of the Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, is turfed uh, in the middle of her seeking shade with a temporary leave of absence because uh, she has issued an apology uh, for pretending to have Mi'kmaq heritage. Why is this happening? Why are presidents of universities pretending to have Indigenous heritage? Is there some special status conferred upon them? Does it create a special class, a special privilege? Well, today we have on the program uh, a woman, an academic, who has experienced this from the other end of the spectrum. She's a woman who has tried very hard over many years to maintain the integrity of academia, to seek truth, uh, and to teach the truth to her students about what's really going on in this country in terms of the relationship between Indigenous peoples, our government, and the way their histories and politics are being taught in our universities. And her name is Frances Whittison. Thanks very much for being our special guest today, Frances. Thanks for having me on. Okay, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Before we dive into it and talk about uh, some of your books and your incredible story, uh, as we always do, we're going to frame our discussion with a few aphorisms. Uh, the first of which is from someone uh, you know about, and that's Justice Murray Sinclair, uh, the person who presided over the, uh, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, he was quoted as saying, while Indigenous children were being mistreated in residential schools by being told they were heathens, savages, and pagans, and inferior people, that same message was being delivered in the public schools of this country. That was in an interview he gave to the CBC. The next uh, quotation is uh, from uh, an American person of some renowned Booker T. Washington, who uh, presents a bit, a bit of a different side of the case. He uh, once wrote uh, that there is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. Next one is from uh, science fiction author Isaac Asimov, who said, it was obvious that bigotry was never a one-way operation, that hatred bred hatred. And finally, from Abraham Lincoln, who's a controversial uh, figure now in the sort of racism uh, discussion, uh, he once wrote that achievement has no color. I expect that our, our guests would agree. Francis Whittison is a, a 
professor of arts. Uh, she was at Mount Royal University. Her biography is that she received an honors B and MA, an MA, that's master's in political science at the University of Victoria and a PhD in political science from York University. She has taught at a number of universities in Ontario and the Maritimes and worked for five years as a policy analyst for the government of the Northwest Territories. Frances uses a political economy perspective in her research on Aboriginal and environmental policy, as well as the politics of religion. Her uh, most recent publication, at least according to this biography, that's not her most recent one now, was co-written with her husband, Albert Howard. It was called Disrobing the Aboriginal Industry, the Deception Behind Indigenous Cultural Preservation. And uh, that was actually shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize. Uh, she's written, uh, I believe, three other books since then on the social effects of religion and other topics. Um, and uh, she's here with us today. Thanks for being our special guest today, Francis, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So let's dive right into it. Uh, you're going along fine, very successful, esteemed career in academia. You're a published author. And then uh, in uh, the, the Mount Royal University comes along and according to an article from the CBC, and I apologize for quoting them here, uh, MRU fires professor who espoused benefits of residential schools and criticized the BLM movement. How did this how did this firing come about? Perhaps uh, share with us uh, some of the history and how, how this all happened. Yeah, so this is a bit of a complicated story and there's bits and pieces and all sorts of articles that um, you know sort of emphasize certain things and don't talk about other things. But um, just so people know if they're interested in my case, uh, there's a website www.wokeacademy.info. And as well, I outline my case in a very specific way in a Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship newsletter article in September 2022, where I outlined like basically why I was fired. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a big backstory that resulted in the kind of conditions which made that possible, which had been going on, uh, I believe, since about 2016. So in 2016, that's when we started to indigenize the university and that put a target on me as someone who was not um, part of the whole you belong here brand of Mount Royal University and started to create a lot of animosity from a whole bunch of different quarters. It really started to ramp up in 2020 with the killing of George Floyd. And then that's when, uh, although that didn't have very much applicability to Canada uh, because of the difference in racial politics, it was sort of seized upon by a group of activists to make demands to bring in mandatory anti-racism training and um, also uh, a whole bunch of resources being diverted to kind of anti-racism and, you know, advocacy studies like black studies types of programs. This resulted because my colleague Sinclair McRae, who is a very, very thoughtful philosopher, had written a long letter criticizing what was happening, especially with the faculty association, which was taking a political position on this and making all sorts of 
untrue claims on behalf of the membership and he was completely ignored in his attempt to bring a you know bring attention to this danger that resulted in me beginning a satirical starting a satirical approach on social media because Toby Young the head of the free speech union said at one point I remember listening to him look the you know people who are what's now called woke this is like the term wokeism which is when identity politics becomes totalitarian in nature that's that's basically how it is and this whole postmodernist kind of thing in the academy whereby uh, subjectivity becomes prized over the objective search for truth and the attack on the enlightenment you cannot reason with people who reject reason and evidence right. and logic so the best thing you can do is sort of you know kind of get in there with humor and uh, kind of poke fun at it a little bit so i started to do this satirical approach um, which resulted in one satirical letter that was saying that um, George Orwell had come to me in a dream and told me that intersectional theory was the right way and we should have an oppression point system to evaluate faculty. So you got one point if you're white or one point if you're male and so on. That made people very angry. And then um, I defended Wendy Mesley, the journalist. Uh, right, CBC. CBC mm -hmm. For... Um, um, you know, referring to a, a book title, uh, which has a racial slur in it. And uh, it was a very uh, rhetorical device used by Pierre Valliere. I defended Wendy Mesley and referred to the book title. And that resulted in an indigenous scholar activist going after me and uh, mobilizing a, an anonymous student group against me. And then I started to, to satirize her attempts to get me fired. And because she was indigenous, she was a prize that the university wanted to have there. And when I started to satirize her efforts, she did this turn where she pretended that I was the one attacking her when she had right. attacked me. And that resulted in the beginnings of a whole bunch of harassment complaints. Being and there, was, against there was even a petition brought by a, a, a student named Kenna Fraser. Yes. Uh, in which well, describes you, after, yeah, the petition is, yeah. I'm looking at it, it says, fire Francis Wittison, a racist professor at MRU. Uh, it's just incredible. I mean, that this must have been just horrifying for you. Um, how did you Yeah, like that? I was already kind of, what had happened is that I was already seeing the terrible things. On, like I was becoming aware that this was now uh we were in a in a battle a serious battle now right. and i would not back down from mm -hmm. my position because i knew i was right on this position unless people can convince me otherwise i'm not going to back down and this just enraged this mob uh that it, it would yes you know started to you know i had all this mobilization and then i i kept on just exposing them like when they would you know call me uh epistemic terrorist and a cowardly bully and a, a human rights violator and all these things. And I would just using my satirical character, Francis McGrath, which is modeled on Andrew Doyle's character, Titania McGrath, a very, very funny satirical kind of effort. Right. Uh, I would just like, I would use their words, but I would string them all together and kind of just exaggerate it slightly and then turn it back on them. And so we had this, you know, really, really intense 
kind of interaction over about the course of a couple of months. Like it went from about, I guess, August to uh, November. That was kind of the, the period. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I was just reacting to what they were doing. And every time they would, would call me names, I would just call myself. Like I was pretending to be denouncing myself as the satirical character and was just exaggerating their terms. So it, it took on this kind of crazy tone, but it wasn't, I was just using their words. So I thought, how am I going to be punished for using the words of people who are trying to get me fired, who are trying to actually end my career mm-hmm. and uh, Mount Royal, just because they wanted to, they were into this whole woke, like they had absorbed, they had been captured by wokeism. Right. They really just wanted to, throw, you know, just get rid of me and and keep this indigenous scholar activist who was the actual harasser who should have been held to account or I don't know, like we're still fighting over whether social media is a workplace issue. Like this is very unclear mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the subject of what's going to be fought over during arbitration as to whether that's the case or not. But if social media is a workplace issue all the people who are trying to get me fired for just defending myself and referring to uh, like trying to defend wendy mesley you know they are far far worse harassers than i was if if we're going to see that as the case so it's a very very complicated case with all these kinds of um kind of questions which are not very clear because universities have just been using their policies arbitrarily to punish mm-hmm. people who they can't control like right. that's and, and because they could not control me mm-hmm. i was going there's no way i am going to back down from this wendy mesley did nothing wrong that was an outrage what happened to her and all this ridiculous stuff about the anti-racism training and everything this is you know this is really destroying the university and so if you kind of satirize that a little bit that's completely within the bounds of academic freedom and fair comment and to punish me for that is just an absolute you know so trap was that was that the basis for your firing though obviously you're a very distinguished scholar you're published your, your book is 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 nominated for the donner prize mm-hmm. going along obviously no issues with your teaching or anything of that nature no. was the sole no. basis for your yes. firing your politics it was the social media uh satirical what i called satirical warfare uh uh, which was seen as being harassing discriminatory Mm. which i don't even know how i like since i have no power over anyone how am i discriminating against people and finally a toxic workplace they claimed i created a toxic workplace through my satire and then when i was i because i was given the impression over a number of years that social media was not a workplace issue because I had been defamed by a whole bunch of colleagues for a number of years. I had been alerting to Mount Royal about, I had been alerting them about this uh, for four years. They'd done nothing about it. They didn't seem to care. Uh, So I thought it's not, they don't see uh, uh, social media's workplace issue. When I was, had these two findings of harassment found against me for social media activities, I said, okay, if you're going to do that, this standard should be applied to everyone at Mount Royal. And I filed uh, 17 harassment complaints against my colleagues for their social media activities to do with this mob. 
Then when one person, and I can talk about her because she's left Mount Royal, her name is Renee Watchman. She's an indigenous scholar activist. When, cause I uh, filed a complaint against her. When she received the complaint, uh, she filed immediately filed a complaint against me. And I was investigated for that complaint. And then that was a completely ridiculous complaint with 15 counts of things like I didn't capitalize I in Indigenous, and I referred to diversity, inclusion, and equity as die. Um, <laughs> and the satirical letter was was found to be harassing. Like the other ones weren't found to be harassing, but that gave the pretext for this investigator to go through my entire social media activity. And then he found a bunch of tweets that he thought were um, demeaning the viewpoint of my colleagues, right? But if we're gonna be saying demeaning the viewpoint of colleagues is a, you know, harassment, then every single uh, professor who's criticizing their colleagues, so this is obviously not going to be um, uh, acceptable. And then, so I found it to be harassment of Renee Watchman. And then I filed an 18th complaint against someone who was like continually agitating against me. And that complaint was found to be frivolous and vexatious. So those four things, um, one, it was a harassment complaint about satirizing a trans activist cartoon, which was about oh. misgendering fatigue. One you're, fighting, you're fighting, you're, you're picking all the, all the big battles, aren't you? Yes. But that one, which is totally ridiculous as well. Um, one tweet satirizing misgendering fatigue and the LGBTQ initialism, right? How the expanding letters that was found to violate three policies and two laws. That one tweet. Uh, so this is the there kind was, of thing. There was another is, issue with trans activists. I read about uh, when I was researching you, uh, Francis, uh, mm -hmm. there were some trans activists who were seeking to forestall any criticism of trans activism and, you attempted to stage an event at MRU with Megan yep. Murphy on the topic, does trans activism negatively impact women's rights? That seems to be that. I mean, the question answers itself mm -hmm. uh, if, if for anybody who's paying attention. Um, but, it, but uh, in, in the sort of febrile world of woke, um, you know, you're responsible for how people feel about what you say. Right. So is it, yep. was that how you got sort of pulled into the vortex of, uh, transgenderism and speaking out yes. about it. Yeah. So, so that was, that was the beginning. So there was two events actually that were in March, 2019 that started off everything. Mm -hmm. uh, one was the trans activism, uh, rational space network event, uh, which was very controversial. It was an excellent event. Everything unfolded as it should. It was, it was, there was a lot of heat uh, around it and a lot of, anger but everyone pretty much behaved themselves and we had a trans activist uh a trans activist julie ray goldstein and megan murphy everyone was per per perfectly able to discuss things in that context um, and there's never been an event like it ever held again because of the trans activists being so intolerant of any kind of criticism of trans activism um, but that kind of mobilized the trans activist element at Mount Royal against me. And because of the way administration responded to it, it fueled the fires of that kind of, you know, poison that was starting mm -hmm. to emerge. And then the other event was a 
a talk that was going to be given by Armin Navabi, who is an ex-Muslim uh, uh, atheist. So he's an atheist and he used to be a Muslim. And he was going to be arguing um, that Islam can't be reformed as a religion because of various reasons. Anyway, they canceled that talk um, because of the, um, there was a, a murder of a bunch of people at the, a mosque in New Zealand. So they canceled the talk. And so the Rational Space Network, which was the organization I was involved in, two other colleagues and, and, and me rebooked Navabi's talk, uh, but we couldn't get him in for a variety of reasons. Uh, the administration ended up expressing regret for canceling the talk, which was great. And so we really congratulated administration for doing that. But that mobilized 30 professors who wrote a letter that we still have not been able to get um, signed by three, 30 people saying that this talk would have caused harm to students. Right. And I wanted to know who had signed that letter and what that letter said, but the administration protected those people and won't release the letter. And so I have the, I've been going through a freedom of information process since 2019 to get that letter. And uh, I would really like to know what was said and who said it. Uh, and that gives you an example of the kind of poison mm -hmm. that was uh, starting to emerge in 2019. And then everything has just kind of, you know, gradually oh. gone forward. The trans activist kind of element was, was, a, was a big part of that. Um, but, you know, it's part of this, um, what I was trying to do starting in 2016, or maybe even earlier, is just have discussions amongst uh, faculty members with different viewpoints so that we could kind of understand one another and look at the evidence. And this was resisted at every turn by the woke faction, and they becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, enabled by the administration until we actually had, you know, the end game, which was removal, my removal from Mount Royal University in December 2021. But I have been recording everything since 2019. So I have a huge database of what's gone on. Everything can be opened up as far as I'm concerned. The whole thing can be looked at and people can judge me in terms of my actions. I'm not afraid of anything. And we can see how a university went from a wonderful institution with great people, Manuel Merton, Robin Fisher, who knew what an academic institution should be like, to the terrible destruction that has unfolded since 2016 because of these activists gaining hold of the machinery and being enabled by administrators who are more concerned with uh, protecting their a woke brand than they are with, you know, maintaining the academic integrity of the institution. So this is, uh, this is something that obviously you are bringing a great deal of awareness to. And uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson as well as uh, is, is somebody who's been very outspoken about this. He resigned his position at the University of Toronto because he couldn't even in good conscience uh, bring on students and try to promote them into an institution which is he considers totally corrupt, corrupted by this this woke ideology. Um, perhaps going back to first principles, Francis, perhaps you could describe and explain uh, what is woke. What does that mean? I mean, yes. to some people, it's uh, political correctness. 
you gave a very succinct uh, definition uh, to it a moment ago, but it seems to have transcended into something more and almost a, a virulent secular religion that cannot be questioned. It's impervious to, to any sort of scrutiny and those who subscribe to it, um, you know, they, they will attack, they will attack anyone who dares question it as though it is, it, it's a sacred, it's a sacred uh, cow. So what is, what is this wokeness and why has it become so entrenched in our institutions, especially the university? Okay. So this is my manuscript, the woke oh, Academy. Um, so I'm, this is my area of expertise now. So this is what I'm going to be doing for the next several years is trying to articulate and analyze what's happened to universities and how most universities, there might be the odd one that's not contaminated. Um, and there's varying degrees of contamination, um, but this is what's happened. And it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, has a lot of facets to it. And it's been happening since the 1960s. There's two kinds of important things about it, which are somewhat combined, but they, they also can be separated. And I've, I've been trying to figure this out and I'm still a little bit unclear myself about it. So I am, you know, working my way through this and I've written this manuscript, which I'm now going to be revising and so on, along with other, you know, work that I'm doing on the Mount Royal case, which is the specific example. Uh, and as we, uh, you know, University of Lethbridge is another kind of blow up. Which I is want to very, talk very, to you about. I want to talk yeah, about that. We'll, in a second, we'll, we'll yeah. sidebar that for now. Mount Royal sure. is, uh, you know, go to Lethbridge, which is the same kind of thing going on, but more in your face. Right. Um, so you have two things. One is postmodernism. The other is identity politics. Uh, wokeism is when identity politics becomes totalitarian. And I have used myself the, the, the uh, description, uh, politically correct totalitarianism. And this was uh, Jordan Peterson, just bringing him back into it. He did some research, his, his psychology uh, grad students did some research on this um, before he left. Um, and he called it politically correct authoritarianism. Um, so uh, I like the word totalitarianism because totalitarianism is actually trying to reshape people's thoughts. And wokeism mm -hmm. definitely is trying to do that. They're they're trying to make they're trying to change words so that you can't think properly anymore, and so on. So it's got a serious totalitarian uh, character to it. Um, so, um, but you have people who are politically correct, but they're not totalitarian. They're liberals, but they just have sympathy for the oppressed, and they allow the totalitarians to seize hold of the institution. So they, they're kind of drawn into it. So there's, a, there's those kinds of facets. So that is the, the wokeism is um, identity politics that's become totalitarian, politically correct, the stuff that's become totalitarian. Um, that's kind of one side of the, the picture. That's really wokeism. But the thing that's allowed wokeism to take root is postmodernism which mm -hmm. is something that emerged in the 1960s, which was an attack on the enlightenment. So the enlightenment is, is a, is a sort of a, a kind of a development that happened in human history, whereby the individual kind of emerged and you were seen as a, an autonomous being who could uh, use reason, evidence, and logic to figure things out. You didn't have to rely on 
tradition, which was, you know, so the aristocracy is mm-hmm. kind of part of the system. You didn't have to rely on religion uh, and sort of dogma to, to sort of tell you the way that you think you, you were able to figure things out as an individual and in your interactions with other individuals. That was under attack in the 60s. And because of that, people's acceptance of that, or, or like at least giving it its 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 due, which it, it should have been just beaten back. Um, this allowed these what's called advocacy studies programs to gain traction in the late 60s and the 70s. And it started off with black studies. Right. Uh, and it also had women's studies. And then we got queer studies and disability studies and indigenous studies, which are not academic programs. They are activist uh, elements, but they pretend to be academic and they they and they have postmodernism is is sort of the justification of that. Right. So what postmodernism did is it it took away our ability to fight against the activism that was starting to take hold in the in the universities and and that activism has been gradually increasing its power and then starting in around 2000 late 2000s it took over the machinery of the of the universities so we have diversity offices indigenous centers women's you know things pride centers all all these kinds of administrative elements now control Mm -hmm. huge areas of the university and the harassment kinds of investigations are 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 tied up with with these these kinds of takeover of the machinery Mm -hmm. now we have human resources that is trying to make sure that you don't say anything that upsets these protected groups along with these diversity offices, which are just putting out propaganda on a daily basis and have also taken over the hiring processes. So now, and we, uh, uh, you mentioned one of the people who, at the beginning who was talking about, I think it's Lincoln. There's a quote yes. by Lincoln that, you, yes. know, uh, you know, you don't have color, you know, accomplishment doesn't have a color, like that merit-based kind of idea that's been completely overthrown by these right. uh it's diversity con- it's considered racist now it's racist yes, to be colorblind is racist yeah. because mm-hmm. yeah and 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 most people are just shaking their heads because they, they 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 don't even know how to start thinking about this but this has been in motion for many many years and i was an observer of it uh for quite a long time <laughs> in my master's program i was at the university of victoria and there was a a big postmodern, you know, woke kind of thing that happened with uh, women. It was about women at that time. It was the, called the Chile Climate Committee. Ooh, uh, Summer Broadrib and a bunch of other feminist, gender feminist professors started accusing the men of sexism and racism and so on. There's this huge blow up that happened. And then when the men asked for evidence of this, they were told that they were accusing the women of lying and there was this you know this really self-interested rent seeking you know attempts to get resources out of the system so anyway i kind of watched that happen in 1990 i was out of there in 1992 but and i was a bit sympathetic to it at the time you know i i could have but i i just, just sort of watching it going because i knew the, the male professors and 
I knew they weren't sexist and I, they'd been very supportive of women in the department. So, you know, and I like, what, why is, what are they talking about with this, these accusations of sex? Like mm-hmm. what, what's all this all about? Anyway, that was, that was kind of the first kind of sniff that I had of the wokeism. And then it's just, you know, it's just continued to just become worse and worse and worse. And now taking over the machinery, it's just intimidating everyone. Like everyone mm-hmm. is very, very intimidated mm-hmm. and uh, they don't know how to fight back against it. And they, and many who are the politically correct liberals will start saying things to you like, you know, what's the harm in, you know, having these things imposed territorial land acknowledgements. It's about, you know, showing that we respect indigenous people and they, they don't realize that it, it is, it's got a totalitarian character and this is going to make dissent impossible, critical analysis impossible in the universities. So um, there's a huge kind of uh, backstory that we're just starting to have a reckoning uh, with now. This post postmodernism is, is really key to it, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. I understand this, it started out as a, as a, as a method of critiquing art. But that mm-hmm. then it sort of bled yeah. into a number of disciplines, and, and the key aspect to it, or one of the key aspects, is a, a rejection of objective truth mm-hmm. and objective reality, yes. which has very, very severe and sweeping consequences across many, many disciplines that are taught at universities. And so, and so, for people like yourselves who are steeped in a concept of truth and try to teach truth and write about it. Um, this is very disconcerting and disarming, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, if you cannot stand on some version of the truth in order to defend your ideas, uh, you really you're on very very shaky ground. And that seems to be the point with wokeness. Uh, that 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 aspect of postmodernism is very very difficult to grapple with, because mm. you can't argue ideas, you can't argue things objectively, because you just you, you just descend into name calling and screaming. Um, and, you know, people, for example, this young swimmer in the United States just got chased, chased into a, a, a safe room. <laughs> I mean, you just, and it, so that brings me to my next point. Uh, let's talk about University of Lethbridge. Yeah, I was in a safe room. <laughs> yeah, into, into Wokism's raging maw, Francis Whittison at the University yeah. of Lethbridge. So tell us about how this came about, this, this experience. Oh. That, that was a, that was from one thing to another. So I just, so I guess it was in November. Um, so Paul Viminitz, who's a friend of mine, his wife, Pamela Lindsay, um, great people. Uh, w- they, they have this thing called, I uh, guess who's coming for dinner where they invite controversial figures to sit down with people and have discussions. So it was very much up Albert Howard, who's my co-author. Uh, we went down there and, and, and we had a great time. Uh, and, and that was a long time ago or a couple of years ago. Anyway, so when I was telling Paul that I was going to arbitration in, in January, uh, he said, well, why don't you come down to Lethbridge and do a guess who's coming for dinner, second uh, session, and then you can teach a couple of philosophy classes and you could do a public lecture on, you know, something to do with academic freedom and this will be great. So I said, oh, this is excellent. I, I just can't, you know, because I'm trying to, Mount Royal's trying to say that my, you know, my relationship 
is unviable and I can't continue because like I'm this, I'm going, you know, I, if I'm teaching classes and I'm doing things, it's going to be a great kind of way of showing like, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing problematic about my whole way I'm doing things. It's this kind of woke kind of thing that's taken over, which is the problem. Mm -hmm. So um, about a week. So we had, we we're kind of settling things up and we get the room, finally get the room number and everything. So at, when I got the room number, I created this poster about my talk, which was um, how wokeism threatens academic freedom. <laughs> that was Ouch. the title of the talk, which is, you know, I'm an expert on uh, because I have been studying this now for starting in the 90s. And I have, I have something to say about this. And I have quite a well thought out arguments and everything. Anyway, so I posted this on Twitter. This uh, this poster, which had the, the visual was of the Chinese struggle section, sessions where someone's got their head bowed and they're, they're being denounced by the, you know, the thought police and everything, which is exactly what is happening here. Um, anyway, so I put that on Twitter and then this guy, Kim Seaver, I think his name is, he's a ultra woke. He's so woke. He has, uh, painted his house in the, the pride, the, the colors of the pride. Flag. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yes. So that's like ultra woke guy who, who ironically has a publication he writes for called the Alberta worker. And of course the working class has nothing to do with wokeism. It's like wokeism doesn't care about the working class. Wokeism cares about boutique and intersectional identities like, you know, black trans femme fat people and all this kind of nonsense. Right. Um, anyway, so he starts agitating at this stage and then this got picked up by a bunch of other people. And then it just started to, you know, ramp up with the students association, which is one of the big problems in universities. Now these woke activists take over the students association and a bunch of professors in the indigenous studies department who wrote this big thing denouncing me. And for some reason they really glommed on to the residential schools as, a, as right. the issue, um, which I'm of course major area of my research, but um, that wasn't going to be talking about the residential schools, except as a, just an example of mm -hmm. wokeism. Right. Uh, the problem but it wasn't going to be the topic. And then, so, um, Paul was saying, well, you know, this might be canceled, you know, the talk and, and, and I'm going, well, that's not, not going to be canceled. And then the president, you know, put out a statement saying, you know, that he thought my, well, I thought that my views were abhorrent, you know, freedom of expression meant that they were going to be allowed. And so I'm going, there's no way this talk is going to be canceled. The president has just put out this statement, you know, doing this kind of wishy-washy defense of academic freedom and, and freedom of expression and their policy and so on. Anyway, he, the heat became so much that he caved to that. Uh, and you and went said, anyway, right? You, you still went to the university, didn't you? Yeah. So anyway, so Paul said to me, uh, what do you want to do about this? Uh, uh, we can have a Zoom uh, talk. Uh, about it and I said yeah no that's good I'm happy to do a zoom talk but I, I think it's very important for me to go to campus and to try to talk on campus not to allow these woke activists to push out uh, and I can just do a speaker's corner type of thing so I'll go find a some kind of thing in the hallway or whatever and you know, like they don't want me to use university resources but this is a public space and 
you know, as long as I'm not engaged in hate speech or whatever, then it shouldn't be any problem me just finding a group of people who wanted to come and listen to me and, and give my talk. Anyway, so we drove down to go and talk in the atrium, which is, is, is attached to U-Hall, the you know, university hall. And, uh, Anyway, so <laughs> we arrived there and and Paul was going, ah, oh, this is not going to be a big deal and whatever. And I'm going, oh, I think there's going to be something happening there. And I got off the elevator and it's like, there's like this filled to the rafters with crowds oh. and people with orange shirts all over the place, signs saying, you know, no place for hate and freedom of speech is not hate speech, all these sorts of things. Oh. And so I'm going, whoa. What, and, and what I, were you I was, thinking at that point? Did it, like get me out of here? Beat no, no, I was no. I was just kind of going, well, this is I, I actually had a slightly, you know, when you have and I know this happens to other people, you have a slightly out of body kind of experience ah. where you kind of see like you're you're out you're you're outside of yourself kind of looking down. And and I actually was kind of amused, slightly amused by it. Like I it's very calm. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just becoming like, oh, this has got to be fought and I don't care what I have to do here. You, you I don't, don't have a flight response anymore. It's all fight. Right? No, it's like, ugh, whatever. So I go up to the front and I got my, I got my speech. I'm <laughs> sitting there. There's a dancer dancing very aggressively, like almost oh. kicking me with her feet. And it's like a slightly, Bizarre. you know, in your face kind of thing. People blocking me, people trying to trip me, doing stuff. But I, I was like, whatever. And uh, I didn't feel threatened. I felt that they were being juvenile and spoiled brats and like, just piss off, you guys. And if you block me, I will push you out of the way. Don't block me. You cannot stop me from moving. So anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of sitting there and, I, and I'm the drumming and everything starting. And, and I was fine to sit there and listen to that for 15 minutes or whatever, but I realized this was not going to stop. So I thought, okay, I've got to go and find an area that's not got all this kind of like noise and everything. So I'm, so I'm, I'm like working my way through the crowd. And uh, when a person that I knew from Calgary didn't know, but I've been interacting with her a bit uh, on Facebook was there. And I didn't even know this was the, the person, but she said, come and meet, come over here. And so I'm following her. And I'm looking for Albert Howard because I lost, I didn't know where he was. He was evidently there watching to make sure I wasn't going to be attacked, but I didn't know. I, I, I was totally like, whoa. Anyway, so as I'm walking through the crowd, I, I encountered this indigenous guy, asked, started asking me questions and I stopped and talked to him for about five, 10 minutes. And it was, it was a very cordial discussion and the media got a bit of a recording of that. And so, and it was, we agreed in the end that it's good to, allow people to discuss these matters and so on. So that was all very fine. And then, so I, I thought I should go find people to talk to because I'm, I'm not just don't want to have an individual conversation. So I moved off. And as I started walking down the hallway, this indigenous woman who was very angry and hostile started screaming at me and telling me that I'd stolen her land and swearing at me. And, and I was like, oh, so I just kind of left that. And I went up onto the risers and then tried to give my talk and was shouted down by this crowd and then the security started to get a little bit you know worried that yeah. there could be something happen i i wasn't worried i i thought i i thought it was kind of like allow people to vent whatever sure. i'm obviously not gonna be able to give my talk but i've made my point that first of all 
wokeism <laughs> for people who are all wondering whether wokeism threatens academic freedom or not hey like take a look at this this is crazy and then so we were escorted they said well you can we'll ask the crowd to give you safe passage out of here so they took us into this sort of safe area that was locked off and didn't want us to be looking at the crowd or anything so we got and we had security and everything was there and then we you know sort of strategized on how to leave without you know i i didn't but i could sort of see security's point because there was a large there's a, a large number of people mm-hmm. so there just had to be one kind of thing happen and you know something could have gone wrong but um i didn't i thought them they were ridiculous you know, there's this one great picture of uh, James. I think it was Tyler hated the picture, but it was on James Pugh's Substack. Anyway, it's a picture of me with my speech, and I'm sort of walking, and and beside me is this kind of Barbie type character with this no, you know, hate speech is not academic freedom. She's got her mouth wide open, and I'm just sitting there going, "This is crazy." <laughs> I kind of got this kind of weird smile on my face, like well, these people are nuts. Um, but that was kind of my whole kind of way of so looking the uni- at it. So the University of Francis is is uh, is intended to be was created to be a place where there would be a free exchange of ideas and where especially young people would be exposed to new ideas because you know they come from everywhere, different neighborhoods, different countries, different parts of the world, different religions, cultures, and so and so on. The idea is to bring them into a place where they can be exposed to things that they don't know, uh, to, to challenge their preconceived ideas with a sort of yeah. uh, longstanding idea that, you know, learning in all disciplines is this conversation across time where we, yeah. we, we discover the best ideas by, by speaking them, them freely. And of course, the university now, uh, as you put it, has been captured by this uh, woke ideology, this woke religion or cult, whatever you want to call it, that suppresses that conversation, that censors and bullies and will use violence. So Mm -hmm. my question for you is, uh, because you're literally on the front lines of this, going into universities, trying to get your point across, um, is there a way forward? Is, is, is there a way to, to, to battle with the, the, this, this, the people who have captured these universities and get these places back and, and, you know, get rid of the safe spaces and actually make universities a safe place to talk about ideas. Yes. Well, we're going to find out. Uh, so I have some plans myself, uh, which I think is the best. Some people, uh, Peter Bogosian and Jordan Peterson, I guess. Uh, so Peter mm-hmm. Bogosian uh, raised the question, do universities have the flu? Do they have cancer or do they have rabies? This is the question. So the flu is, is this kind of a passing phase? And some people think that it's just, you know, wokeism is the latest, you know, flavor of the mo- month. And then, you know, a year from now, it's just, it will be going, what happened there? Uh, and then the, the cancer is like, you need serious treatment here. You need chemo. <laughs> you, need, you need to go in there. And, Patient you know, is dying, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, the, you, know, you gotta you got to have serious, uh, you know, scorched earth kind of thing to get things back on track. Mm-hmm. And then the, the rabies is, is that 
you know, you, you, your, you know, your dog is no longer your dog anymore and it can't be saved. It just needs to be shot. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think the flu thing is valid at all. The, the, the most kind of significant problem is that the woke have taken over the hiring in Uh, university. Yeah. So this is a big problem. So Mm -hmm. this happened Mm -hmm. at Mount Royal. So the woke got in there and they've hired huge numbers of like-minded people yeah. uh, to these Accolades. positions. Right. So now you're going to have a real hard time in any kind of academic collegial setting. Uh, so that might be the, the rabies kind of argument, but I am, I am go back and forth between rabies and cancer. And I, right now I'm operating as if the university has cancer. Right. Uh, so cancer is uh, organization. I think is the only way you're going to fight this. And mm-hmm. so I belong to an organization called the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. I'm a board member. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president is Mark Mercer, who's a very, very thoughtful guy and not uh, not prone to any kind of ideological kind of background, which helps because often the ideological aspects get in the way of trying to solve these problems mm-hmm. because people often use freedom of expression and academic freedom as a weapon to fight their enemies when we have to be completely principled about it. Um, so, you know, these kinds of attempts to get rid of critical race theory, out of the, you know, this is a difficult problem because we really need to analyze critical race theory and who best to, you know, provide the case for it than someone who's a, a true believer in it but right. the problem is, is that the totalitarianism stops that from happening um so um as a role my uh, the society for academic freedom and scholarship uh, is the most significant organization defending academic freedom and freedom of expression and academic standards in universities but they're very uh small and they don't have a lot of resources so what's going to happen is we've got to tie in the national. So it's a national organization, but it doesn't have very many roots in the local universities. So what I want to do over the next couple of years is organize the local chapters of these universities. So you have a university like Mount Royal, for example, or Lethbridge, they've got a bunch of people who are academics who are concerned about things, but they don't know how, what to do because if they speak up, they're going to be taken out. So, mm-hmm trying to give them some kind of support uh, with other people and, you know, build the organization and try and strategize as to how to do that and then link that into the national organization and then have the national organization linked up with other international organizations. And there's a number of very, very good organizations internationally now. FIRE, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, I think it's called the United States. They've been doing great work. And they've got legal backing and they've been being able to make serious headway legally in universities. The Free Speech Union is another really good organization in the UK. There's a bunch of other different organizations which are all kind of doing their own separate thing. But we need to almost have a clearinghouse or some way of kind of bringing all those organizations together. So that's kind of what has to be done. And uh, it, it takes a lot of on the ground work. And, and talking to people and figuring out how to how to organize these things. Right. So that, that's really the future, if there's any hope. Some people have given up. Like that, that's why Jordan Peterson left is because right. he's given up and he's saying right. no, 
these institutions don't work anymore. We need to start new institutions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's not your, that is not your view. Well, I, I <laughs> right now, uh, well, my own view is, is it's possible that's the case. But um, as I said to other people, uh, uh, Jim McMurtry, who's a, a teacher who just got fired and is that um, we should see ourselves, our role as um, trying to restore the institutions to their academic character. Right. That's what our new career is going to be. And if we are unsuccessful, we can still contribute by showing future generations where things went wrong. So documenting mm. the decline right. and the destruction. So it's like, okay, mm. this is why, and, and I can, at Mount Royal, I can tell you exactly when, uh, well, there's two things that happened that, that just really destroyed Mount Royal. And I, and I have the two events. One was, um, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, which used to be a good organization, they have some good elements. And in fact, they're they're my legal defense. <laughs> In our Let's nation, tread carefully. They're, they're much better than the, the local unions, which are completely mm -hmm. woke and captured. They still have integrity in the academic freedom. But they um, were invited by my union to give in 2014 to give a seminar and workshop an equity seminar and workshop. And that was just a terrible event that happened. And it was no thought was given to how, what they were proposing, which was like targeting on the basis of, they actually recommended territorial land acknowledgements be put on your syllabus and stuff like this. I, I was just absolutely appalled when I saw the Canadian Association of University Teachers was kind of, masterminding this and with no thought of how this was going to undermine the academic character. That Renee Watchman, uh, who I mentioned, I asked some questions at that event and she, that was one of her counts of harassment against me that she put forward. So that, that was going to get a symbol, a, a, a signal that things, I didn't know about that at the time. It was, you know, six years later that she, brought that out again. So that was one. Second one was uh, we had a provost. We hired, and the provost is a very, very important position because they're the head of the academic right. uh, mandate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a diversity hire because she's a woman uh, who was totally unsuited to be a provost. Kathy Shaler, she became provost and she well, was fired eventually because she was such a bully and a terrible person to be in there. But she was she was there for a couple of years and she uh, brought in indigenization. That was her ah. project. Uh, and so those two events, 2014, uh, once they once that started to roll out, you know, Mount, Mount Royal is no, no longer the same. And the big thing here is um, universities should not be making political statements. And there's a report mm. in the United States called the Kelvin Report that that makes a very good case for why this shouldn't happen. Because what you do if you have the university making a political statement is you give a signal to all the academics that this is, um, a, um, you know, kind of um, mouthing this is right. the way your advancement in the institution and so you give subtle 
kind of encouragement for a particular position. And that then undermines the academic kind of, uh, kind of way in which academics mm -hmm. can, can, can discuss things that you give, uh, you give kind of backing to one faction over another. And, and, and that's, that's what happened with indigenization. And I knew I wrote about, <laughs> I was sounding the alarm about this right from the beginning. I, mm -hmm. I said, this is not a good idea. And people all told me, oh, you can still continue with your work. No one's going to stop you. Uh, you know, you have academic freedom. Don't worry about it. You know, you're protected. Well, no, that 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 was um, undermined me and got the students. The students were staying. Why is Frances Widdowson allowed to be a professor at Mount Royal? She's opposed to indigenization. Mount Royal's in favor of indigenization. She shouldn't be here. She wants to, you know, if she's so, she dislikes indigenization so much, why doesn't she get a job somewhere else? These kinds of things were being said. And that's totally was enabled by these political statements. So you, we have to get the university out of making those political statements, diversity statements, all this kind of stuff, diversity loyalty oaths, which are all over the place. Um, Merit-based hiring has to be restored. Um, and there's actually a, a Dorian Abbott, who's a professor from the University of Chicago. It's called Merit, Fairness, Equality. Those are the, like, instead right. of I, diversity, inclusion, equity, right. F, uh, E. So that that's kind of equality is no one should be discriminated against for on the basis of attributes that have nothing to do with their job, right. you know, ability to do the job. Right. So. Um, that should never be a discrimination that happens. So that's equality, not equity, which is uh, selecting people on the basis of these prized identity characteristics. Right. And then merit, uh, which, of course, is undermined by the whole targeting kind of thing. Um, and then fairness. So, like, this is a big thing that's happened to me, which I'm going to document over the next few years is I was treated terribly unfairly by Mount Royal. They um, changed their policies specifically to go after me. Um, so that is going to be, and we're going to have all that come out, you know, in the next while. Um, for example, for two investigations, I never received the complaint. Uh, I was forced to go through an investigation not actually knowing what the allegations were against me. That would uh, seem to so, violate basic principles of procedural yes, fairness. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you tell them that they're doing this. Like I, it wasn't like I said, okay, well I said, Hey, you know, I, I started right away with the grievances against it. So they knew that this was, but they didn't care because there's no accountability in the university system for these administrators. Like they just get shipped from one institution to another, right? Um, and uh, you know this has to be this has to be uh, you know examined in a in a in a very very concerted way. And that's one thing my case is going to be able to do too is that I can offer a lot of assistance to professors who are being treated in this 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 very unfair way and 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 these investigations. So what happens is the university will hire a investigator pay an investigator and that investigator gets signals as to how mount royal or university wants them to find like what they want 
to find what, what they what result they want. Like, and for for me, it was, you know, make sure Francis Whittleson is going to be, you know, held up to this very high standard, whereas everyone else who went after me and mobbed me and tried to get me fired, they were at a much lower standard that they right. were held to. So, Making an example of you. Right. Yeah. And so it's only when you go through arbitration that you can you can start to get into these. But of course, no one wants to do that or very few people want to do that um, because you've got to wait. This arbitration is going to go to uh, probably June 2024. So it mm -hmm. started in 2021, January 2021. Those were when the first grievances were filed. And then it's going to end if I'm lucky in June 2024. So three and a half years to find out what, what went wrong. And then even then, you know, it's likely it's going to have to be appealed to the courts. So uh, they, you know, they'll be brought into ready. judicial review process, right? Yes. Uh, which I'm like, I will fight this to the end. So, you know, Mount Royal, who thinks they're going to wear me down through their delayed tactics and, you know, stretching it out for as long as they can. And that will not work. Uh, there will be no plea bargain. I, my whole new career is going to be, you know, sort of examining the nature of universities and how they have been destroyed. Right. And with Mount Royal being Exhibit A uh, and University of, <laughs> University of Lethbridge being Exhibit B. And then, you know, all the other universities all over the place that are, you know, having these terrible kinds of things happening that we never even hear about, right? There are there are all these cases which, you know, no one even knows about because they get put into these secretive procedures mm -hmm. and then someone gets bought out. Usually you get bought out in the end. And so there's never a decision. It gets bought out even before it gets to, you know, gets a decision from arbitration. Right. So no one even finds out about what's happening. But uh, mm -hmm. we have well, serious... So, yeah. Well, God, God bless you for your for your courage for and, and for the fight <laughs> that you're fighting because I know that you're doing it uh, not just on your own behalf. You're doing it on behalf of truth, and because it's obviously obviously you, you really care about the university system and restoring it to to dignity. Uh, this yes. is the part of our program, Francis, where we turn to something called the reading list. You'll appreciate this as a professor, uh, mm. and your books are featured. Uh, I want to tell people about. Um, Indigenizing the University. This is a book that you published a couple of years ago. You've talked about a little bit. The description is that since the release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's findings, administrators, faculty members, and students have heard that universities should be indigenized. Concerns about the poor educational levels of many Indigenous, indigenous people have resulted in the claim that indigenizing the university will help to address this problem. Up until now, however, the history of colonialism has made it difficult to discuss the initiative's implications honestly. And so uh, this edited volume strives to openly examine the multiple aspects of university indigenization and by bringing in diverse perspectives from a variety of disciplines about a number of different facets of indigenization. It is hoped that we can better understand how current efforts will impact indigenous peoples and universities as a whole. And most importantly here, it says, as truth-telling, as truth-telling is an essential part of reconciliation, this volume helps us all in our attempts to improve post-secondary education for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. That sounds like uh, a very credible and very laudable approach to academic scholarship. <laughs> but, yes. but it seems that uh, 
it, it to some people it had the opposite effect. It certainly offended the woke crowd. Uh, the mm-hmm. thesis of that book, right? Um, yes. The other book that you wrote back, uh, of course, you've written several, but the other one, uh, other most recent book, let's call it, that you released in November of 2019 is called Separate Unequal, How Parallelist Ideology Conceals Indigenous Dependency. Do you want to talk about this book a little bit about that concept of parallelist yeah. ideology? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so this book, The Separate But Unequal, it, it, it's... Um, it's basically a follow-up to disrobing the Aboriginal industry. Mm-hmm. So disrobing the Aboriginal industry, which is co-authored with Albert Howard, that was our first, um, you know, attempts to kind of document what we thought was, was going on with Indigenous policy. And then I had my doctoral dissertation, which I did uh, during that time. And I, uh, the separate but unequal is a rewriting of my doctoral dissertation, which is is taking many of the themes and disrobing the Aboriginal industry, and elaborating upon the theoretical uh, kinds of aspects that are behind uh, sort of the more policy oriented uh, types of discussions that happened in disrobing the Aboriginal industry. So parallelism, which was a word uh, put forth by the political scientist. Alan Cairns, a very, very well-known political scientist who who wrote a book called Citizens Plus, looking at um, his work that he had done himself in uh, the 50s and the 60s called the Hawthorne, there was a report called the Hawthorne Report that he was a major researcher on. And that was the proposal of the Hawthorne Report that uh, you would have, um, Indigenous people would be Canadian citizens, but they would have special kinds of protections um, yeah. to ensure that they had their cultures were not, um, you know, this sort of like dealing with the problem of assimilation, that assimilation was a was a bit of a draconian type of policy. And if you had more of an integrative kind of approach, then you wouldn't have the alienation that was caused um, right. due to assimilation. Right. So parallelism, though, which Alan Cairns was a critic of, is the nation to nation view that was mm. being put forward in Indigenous policy, which started with the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. So separate but unequal, my book, it used the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which was the precursor to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was actually the the academic backing for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. It uses that document as the kind of example of parallelism. So parallelism, the assumptions of parallelism are throughout the Royal Commission report. And it's the idea that um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous societies will kind of uh, sort of go forward on parallel paths and and not really uh, interact very much. Doesn't sound workable, does it? Um, Well, well, it's, it's not workable because it sort of assumes that indigenous groups are nations, which is not accurate in my view. Um, I think this was a bit of a fabrication that started to happen because of Quebec sovereignty arguments and attempts to sort of say that indigenous people were like Quebec, uh, aspiring for self-determination. But Quebec is a very different case than the indigenous groups. Quebec, for example, can actually form a sovereign state if it chose to do so. It has mm. a 
large economy. It has a it has institutions in place. It would be somewhat um, shared shared language. Yeah. You know, yeah, it would be it would be disruptive to the Canadian Federation, but it can it could actually occur. Right. Whereas th- this kind of idea of sovereignty for indigenous groups is totally impossible. Right. In the, in the sense of the Quebec robust kind of idea, mm-hmm. because you have very small groupings. You have 633 uh, the last time I was looking at it. And, and even the large groups like uh, Inuit is probably the most, it's probably the best example is the Inuit, are, you know, 30,000 people and ha- does have an institution, which is Nunavut is the, the it's kind of a quasi provincial, but even then Nunavut is completely dependent on the rest of Canada. It doesn't have um, actual economic base in Nunavut. So mm-hmm. again, you don't really have the Quebec situation of a of an actual, you know, economy that could uh, exist in relationship to all the other, you know, countries in the world and so on. So the whole thing is a fabrication uh, designed to extract transfers from the government and corporations and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it's what's called in the economics literature, rent seeking. So the demand to be sovereign is then used as a, as a kind of a cudgel right. uh, to extract various kinds of agreements. And this creates a more and more dysfunctional system in Canada, because now we're kind of pretending that indigenous groups are sovereign when they're not at all, right? Um, it's just a rent-seeking exercise. Yet we're sort of proceeding on the basis that they are sovereign, but they can never be sort of have their own separate kind of entity. So you're always going to have uh, indigenous people who are on their in their communities, always having to interact in a very very um, you know sort of concerted way with other kinds of areas in Canada. Yet we have this kind of idea of sovereignty. So they shouldn't really ha- be subject to the the national kind of laws that exist in Canada, which is creating all sorts of problems for things like child welfare or environmental protection or all these things, which kind of need to have some kind of overarching right. uh, kind of standard, which, which is now being broken down by all these demands to, to have this kind of parallelism. Occur. Yeah. I can certainly see why, uh, certain people at the university would uh, consider those views uh, offensive. Uh, uh, well, although I happen to think they're quite correct. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think most rational people should. I can certainly understand how they would have gotten you into trouble at the university. And, Francis, and even worse, uh, yeah, 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 go ahead. And even worse, like what happened is, is that because I was called a racist, right. for having these views, for, for recognizing... Which, is, which has become a meaningless term, isn't it, really? Well, it, it's it's not racist at all because it it, it, it says the, the indigenous the circumstance of indigenous people which are causing all these difficulties are not due to race at all. It's due to the history of colonialism and the fact right. that um, hunting and ga- gathering tribal groups were being basically absorbed into you know the Canadian capitalist system. And if we could just provide more intensive services to the to indigenous people especially in the remote areas then you would be able to develop the educational yeah. kinds of 
which is exactly uh, what they want when you when when you hear them when they tell you what they want that's what they that's what they tell that's what they'll tell you yeah and and, but because it was called a racist for putting forward these views which are very very sympathetic to the indigenous circumstances and are trying to work at actually improving conditions what happened is gradually over time more and more people became afraid of standing up for my position Mm -hmm. Um, so now i'm just pretty much completely alone with everyone you know except for albert howard and me and maybe the odd you know sort of intervener um but it, it just is is it, it i've just become ostracized out of the system mm-hmm. which i'm perfectly you know i can stand my ground I, I don't need to have you know people but now what's happened is that it undermined the whole uh you know university uh, kind of environment that that protected me and enabled me to put forward those views, which I think are very, very important, very truthful, right. and will be actually the answer to solving these terrible conditions in these isolated uh, Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's happened, which is, is very, very unfortunate mm-hmm. for the truth-seeking enterprise. Mm, I could not agree more. Uh, Francis, uh, I want to thank you for this time. Uh, it's been really illuminating listening to you and hearing about you. I admire your courage very much. I don't know anyone could not admire your courage, even if they disagree with your views. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, you hold them quite uh, fervently and sincerely, and that you're, you're fighting for something bigger than yourself. Uh, that that's also shines shines through. And so I've really enjoyed this time with you. I want to thank you very much for being our special guest today on Grey Matter. And I want to wish wish you much uh, success in your fight, especially with your arbitration. I hope that you'll come back and talk to us again uh, when you get a a decision. I'd like to hear more about that. But thank you very much for being our special guest today on Grey Matter. Thank you very much, 